I'm Jeff Cohen. Rabbi Mordechai Yosef ben Avraham was born Sharif Hassan. To say that his life's journey took him away from the circumstances of his birth would be an understatement. The name change alone gives you a pretty big hint about the nature of his journey. But let's hear Mordecai tell the story in his own words, because you're about to hear a unique perspective on what it means to follow a Torah way of life. So let's get started. Rabbi Mordecai Yosef ben Avraham, welcome to Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you, Jeff. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be on here. I've been looking forward to this. So let's, let's get it started. All right, and I should acknowledge for our regular listeners, if my voice sounds a little bit different, I'm a little bit under the weather today, but as they say, the show must go on, and they're really here to hear your story more than mine, so I will do my best to get through the questions, and I'm sure you'll have some great answers. Excellent. Okay, so as we dive into your story, I found as we've done a number of interviews, it's often good to start with your parents' journey a little bit to set some context for how you come into the world. So can you tell us a little bit about your parents' background? Yeah. My parents, you know, what's interesting about them is my mom comes from the South. She's from Mississippi, but lived there for a short amount of time and then moved to Los Angeles. And my dad pretty much grew up like in Ohio, the Cleveland area. Both of them grew up in a generation where it was like, hey, a lot of Black people were going to universities and and going to colleges. And before that, it was like, you know, levels of segregation. But this was like, you know, late 60s and 70s. It really like opened up. And so that's when my parents kind of went into the the college space. And and they were kind of like just looking for like new truths, you know, on both sides. You know, they were exploring different things, wanting to be professionals, wanting to be business people, different things like this. But really ultimately looking for more knowledge about life. And I think that was the synergy that connected my parents in their early meetings, that they both were kind of looking for this truth. They both grew up in like Christian backgrounds. I think my mom's experience was different than my dad. My mom coming from the South, you know, Christianity was like much more of like a a social construct to my dad who grew up in Cleveland, where it was more of like an urban city and people kind of like do as they want in a way, you know what I mean? Like church culture is a pervasive. But nevertheless, it was a time in the the late 70s where there were so many new ideas being introduced in America as a a whole. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar and uh, Muhammad Ali, you know, these very like charismatic people, like exploring things like Islam, trying to figure out like this world beyond Christianity, which in essence for many of them was like a religion that justified abuse against black people in, in the South. And if you go back further, you can even see little hints like, for example, like my mom's mother, in blessed memory, Marie Reinhardt, she was like a famous jazz musician. You know, she like traveled jazz, but her parents were like preachers. And so she was like the rebel in a lot of ways. And then you look on my dad's side, my dad's father was like in um, the Korean War. He was like in like masonry and like all types of stuff. And he had a very like expanded viewpoint of seeing the world as well, too. So he was kind of like rebellious in a way, like out of the box. And so I think both of those influences really kind of like shaped my parents in their own unique ways. And I think that curiosity about something bigger than what they came from, along with being out of the box, kind of brought them together. Now, you said they both came from Christian backgrounds, but at the same time, in the introduction, I mentioned your original name being Sharif Hassan, and you also brought up Islam. So does something change as your parents are starting to explore different faiths and religion before you come into the picture? Yeah. So before I came into the picture, they were in college campuses and they both had different influences, but it was a time where 
a lot of the sentiment around Islam in the late 70s, in the early 80s, was more like coming from a place of decolonizing yourself. So a lot of black people wanted to have like, you know, Muslim names. They wanted to practice Islam. They didn't want to go to the church. And so Islam was kind of like a way for them to venture in that way. I wouldn't say they were necessarily scholars of Islam. More so, I would say that it was a desire just to move away from what they saw as kind of an oppressive form of seeing the world. But I would say they got more into what you call like Sufism. So like Islam was there, but it wasn't necessarily the forefront. The forefront, my parents really got into this like working on yourself. They were like pioneers in a lot of ways in terms of being into like therapy and working yourself as African-Americans like 20 years ago. I mean, now like everyone's talking about mental health and this everything, but we grew up in that reality where we were having like family meetings, you know, amongst us every week and people were expressing how they felt about things. And we had individual meetings with like, you know, people like therapists, these types of things, but it wasn't just one person, it was a whole family. And then Islam was kind of like something that kind of like supported that in a way, you know what I mean? Where we weren't a part of like any like particular mosque. We didn't have like a bunch of like Muslim friends, you know what I mean? Or anything like that. But you know, we would fast. We didn't believe in any idols. You know what I mean? My parents tried their best to have like halal food in the house, these types of things. But it was never, um, religion was never the, the catalyst in our life growing up. So I have a pretty good sense of your parents' background and their feelings. Let's bring your personal journey into the story. Where does your story begin? Where are you born and raised? And given all these things you've said so far about religion, when you were a young child, if someone said to you, what religion are you? How would you have answered that question? So I was born uh, actually in Springfield, Ohio, and I moved to California when I was like two years old because my dad was going to college, liberal arts university, and then my mom moved out there and then they got married. And then like a year or two later, whatever, I they, I was born and, and then we uh, eventually moved back to Los Angeles. So growing up, I would have definitely considered myself like Muslim for sure. I was very proud of it. You know, I saw it as like a, a good thing. I saw it as something to be proud of. My spiritual journey doesn't come from a place of like, oh, this was bad. So yeah, I would definitely identify that as Muslim when I was younger. So when you talk about Los Angeles, and granted, my opinion is coming from someone sitting in the New York, New Jersey area, mm -hmm. you hear a lot about materialism, fame, celebrity coming out of Los Angeles. What was your experience in the backdrop of the way you characterized your parents as truth seekers into spirituality? Like, how were those two worlds meshed together in your childhood? As much as my parents were definitely into the truth seeking that, you know, my dad's business was very successful. We grew up in pretty much a suburban area of the San Fernando Valley in Los Angeles, referred to West Hills and Calabasas. The area that we grew up in, it was a place where a lot of people who worked in the entertainment business when they wanted to move out of Los Angeles, they would come over the hill to the valley because it was more like suburban and, you know, it wasn't the intensity of like being in L.A. as a celebrity. So there was a lot of uh, celebrities, a lot of famous people that grew up with us, like the Kardashians being one of them, you know, it was around that time. And so, you know, I guess my parents, as much as they were spiritual, I mean, they are still to this day, you know, thank God. But there was a time where that aspect was really challenged. Because my dad had a very successful business, and we did have the seduction of, of materialism. So we had a lot of nice things. And, you know, like my first car was like a Mercedes and like a, a, a sports coupe, you know what I mean, type of a thing. My dad didn't grow up the way I did. And so 
you know, it, it was a battle, you know, but I think that was the beginning, I think, of my spirituality, you know, because when you think about it, most of the times when we think about African-Americans that make it big, a lot of it has to do with guys that were like, or females that were like in the ghetto, you know what I mean? Like they were like in a really bad situation and they got out of that situation and then they made it and they made money and now they live in a good neighborhood, right? But like when you grow up with the Joneses, you grow up in the good neighborhood, you grow up with all the things that the world says you should have, you like a lot of other kids you grew up with are like thinking like, what's next? Like, what am I, like, I'm supposed to get a bigger house than my dad. I'm supposed to make more money than my neighbors. Like, what's, what's the whole point of this? As where if I grew up in a bad neighborhood, it would just been a sigh of relief just to get out. And so that was kind of like the challenge growing up is like, yeah, I know there's this aspect of truth that I should always pursue because that's my parents' baseline. But at the same time, the environment that I'm growing up in is in the complete opposite dynamic. And on top of it, a lot of people are suffering. Like we had like the second highest drug rate in the state of California, Calabasas High School, my senior year. You know what I mean? So it wasn't like, oh, because we had a lot of money and resources and nice cars that life was better. And so I think that was looking back in retrospect, that was kind of like the real beginning of me questioning uh, life. So advancing your story, as you get into the later teen years, you're starting to think about college. Where is your head at? Are you thinking materialistically? Like you just mentioned this idea of, do I want a bigger house than my dad, a nicer car? Are you thinking about spirituality? Like what is your mindset as you go into college? Where do you attend? What are you thinking of doing with your life? College for me was like athletic focus. Like I was, when I was in high school, like I played football and my initial plan was to go to school down in San Diego. So my senior year in high school, my shin on my leg, I had like a little bit like a stress fracture in a way. And it needed to, the only way stress fractures can heal is it's like by not putting a lot of pressure on it. So I was going to sit out that first year going to college. When I was going to sit out that first year, I was still going to, you know, be in school and the whole thing. My dad offered me to uh, come and work for the family company. He says like, hey, if you're going to register this first year, at least for the first semester, you could travel with me and learn about, you know, the family business, which was like the insurance business. And I said, you know what, why not, you know? And so when I did that, it wasn't just me working for my dad. It was also like me, like going to like therapy and working on myself and, and really asking like a lot of questions about like what I wanted to do with myself and do it like, cause I was just thinking like, Hey, I wanted to go to college and like party. That was like, my whole thing, like I played football, I went to party, I'm in San Diego, you know what I mean? Like that was my whole thing. And so when I started working for my dad, it was like, it, I really like kind of like slowed down and start to think about the bigger picture and life and whatever, these types of things. So what I did was, is that I decided I didn't want to play football anymore. I wanted to like own a football team. That was like my thing. Like, I didn't want to be out there like sweating and, you know, lifting all these weights so anyway, so I started to work for my dad, like pretty much like almost full time. And so UCLA, where my mom was teaching at, had like an extension program. So you can go and take classes in conjunction with the university and you can still work full time. And, and when I was there at, on the campus a lot, some of my friends from Calabasas that I grew up with were there. And long story short, me and my friends started collaborating. This guy's Sam. I mean, like he's more of my younger, I mean, he's, he's my friend too, but he was friends with my younger brother. And so anyways, we collaborated and we started an internet company when, when we were in college and that kind of like, we raised a bunch of money for it. And then that was kind of like, that just, that springboard me 
into this like new life, which was this business world that I, I was in. So you hear a lot of stories about people who are in college, they have a business idea and they have to choose, do I continue with college or do I bet on this business idea and maybe put college on the back burner to see what this can become? So what happens with you? You mentioned this program in UCLA, but now you have this business. So what do you do with these two worlds that you're living in? You know, my mom gave me the best advice. She said, you know, you're too smart for school. School is not designed for guys like you. Like you need to be in business. Like you need to for sure be in business and that type of thing. And so my mom is the one who gave me the confidence to go that route, and we went forward with it. So in researching your background, I came across a story that you had a little something to do with the skinny jeans trend. So I was hoping you could share that story. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So my mom wrote a thesis for her PhD, right? And part of her thesis was this concept called habits of mind. And it was basically like the idea was to say that like when people say they grow up in a very difficult environment, like difficult neighborhood, there's a lot of challenges, but someone's able to like go and have success. Well, my mom's theory was kind of like, well, you can study that person's habits of mind and, and, and be able to do that. It's kind of like in Torah, that's what we do, like in Yeshiva, like we're learning the, the, the habits of mind of the Rishonim, right? And so, so I got really into that. And so my mom showed me, she's like, hey, you know, you came out of school, you started these businesses, you did these different things. You know, maybe you should think about your habits of mind because I didn't do so well in school. Like, I, I mean, my siblings are like doctors and went to, you know, you know, all these amazing universities. And for me, I was like the guy who just like became a rabbi. I started to look at my experiences learning about business and wanting to go back and help young kids who maybe also may be struggling in school and out of the box to go back into schools and, and have a curriculum for them to kind of like start to see things a little bit differently about themselves and business and what they could achieve using my own experiences, being someone who struggled in school. So anyways, so I got into that. And then while I was teaching that on campus, I saw this whole new like fashion trend and all these young kids basically wanting to get away from like gang violence and wanting to get away from really negative things. Right. Cause I was teaching in like really like tough areas. I wanted to like support what the kids were doing. So then I got involved and I like helped turn it into a brand and I did some TV stuff and movie stuff and a lot of music stuff around it. And we merchandise it. And the skinny jeans was really getting kids away from baggy jeans because baggy jeans were connected to like gang culture. So skinny jeans was more like about creativity and dancing and having fun. So that was the idea was just to um, do that. But anyways, I ended up working for Warner brothers uh, for a few years and uh, we had, a, we did a lot of amazing things and um, generated a lot of uh, revenue for our partners. So here's what's so interesting about your story so far. I've done enough of these interviews that I can usually sense how and when Judaism is going to come into the picture. But from everything that you've said so far, if someone heard your story up to this point, I don't think they would necessarily think that Judaism is going to enter into your life. So what's that first moment that it suddenly is on the radar for you? There was this girl that I, I knew from high school. It was like kind of like when I first moved out to the city, we met up. And she was like, yeah, let's meet at this kosher bagel place. And I was just like, oh, okay, you know, and I was, it always starts with the bagel, right? I was at the kosher bagel place, and I was like, is it only, like, for Jewish people? Like, what, you know, like, what's this, you know, like, what's the thing? She's like, no, anybody could come. I said, that'd be okay, like, if I came and had a bagel, too? Like, is it all good? She's like, yeah, she's Jewish, right? So she's like, yeah, like, what are you, like, what are you? I've never been to a place, a kosher place before. Like, it was, like, never, like, a thing. So that was there, and, and I enjoyed it. And I remember we were sitting there eating in the bagel place, and all these people were, like, wanting to know, like, who was I and this? And I'm with this girl, and it was just, like, this whole thing. 
So I, I remember that was a very good experience. And then later, I met another girl. So always with something to do with a girl, right? So I met this other girl at a business conference, and she was involved in the Kabbalah Center in Los Angeles. And I would like I just wanted to get to know her. I didn't know anything really about the Kabbalah Center other than seeing like some press releases about Madonna. You know what I mean? Being involved back then, right? And so, anyways, long story short, she takes me to the Kabbalah Center. I just remember sitting there. I'm telling you, like, this is like a true story. I'm sitting there in one of their introduction lectures at the Cabal Center, and I'm sitting there, I'm like, I've been waiting my whole life to hear this. Like, I was just, I'm saying, I was just like, I've been waiting my whole life. Like, you know, like, because, you know, one of the things is, like, when you grow up with parents that are dreamers, like, you're going to grow up with different movies, like, Never Ending Story and, you know, Roger Rabbit, like, these, like, different imaginative realities of what the world could be and what could happen. And when I went to the Cabal Center, it was like the first time I actually heard someone speak about it in like a concise, spiritual way. But this is the Torah, right? This is the Torah. Like the Jewish people every year of Pesach celebrate a miracle. Like who thinks about miracles? And so that was the beginning. And that was like 2002, 2003. I don't know, like 21, 22 at the time. or so 23 maybe you know, at that time. But yeah, it was um, that. That was the beginning of the ship starting to like tilt towards the east, you know. And from what I know about the Kabbalah Center, I can see how it gets you thinking about self-help, personal growth, being a better person. It doesn't seem to me that they're necessarily pushing conversion. And we know that your story is going to ultimately get to converting to Orthodox Judaism. So, is there something that comes out of the Kabbalah Center that gets you thinking a little bit more about your own religious background and, and who you want to be going forward? The thing that really that got me was when the conversation changed to how God expresses himself in the physical world and how we connect to that. Meaning that like Hashem is revealing himself through everything all the time. I eat an apple and I say a bracha. I've now connected myself to the life force of Hashem. And not just that. My calendar is all fixated and structured in a way where God's light is revealed in certain times of the year, and I get to connect to it, whether it's through Pesach or Rosh Hashanah or Sukkot, Shavuot, whatever. I get to do that, right? And so that system, you know, for me, Islam cannot compete with that. Once you open up the whole sugya, like once you open up the bases and you say, okay, we're talking about my soul in connection to God's light. When it comes to that conversation, let's open up the sugya. And so when you open up that sugya, what do you see there? You see calendars, you see brachot, you see Hebrew letters, you see the Torah, you see the Tanakh, and everything else, most things that you see out, and then you got to bring in the Kabbalah, the Zohar, Rabbi, uh, the, the Ariza, Rabbi Shimon, you know, Rabbi Eliezer, you know, all these different humongous people that have existed, you know, Lubavitch Rebbe, you know, the... Boshinto, whoever, but I'm just saying you have so many amazing people and blessed memory, all of them. It's just to say, then you have thousands of years of knowledge on how to connect. And everyone else is just trying to imitate. Once you look at it on that standpoint, the Torah is just true. And the system of the Torah, the system of the mitzvot is just true. And so from there, it was just kind of like, you know, what, what choice do you really have? I should mention, by the way, I'm sure our listeners are hearing sirens and ambulances in the background from a few of your answers. So let's just point out that you're, you're doing the interview from Yerushalayim. Yeah. You're doing this interview, unfortunately, during the time where Israel is at war with Hamas. So as I'm hearing that, I'm always thinking like, hope you're okay. I hope things are good. Um, but I, th- I think you're safe where you are in Yerushalayim. So I just wanted to acknowledge that because we're hearing that in the background. 
And as we continue the story, I can see how you're starting to get turned on by what you're seeing as kind of the truth of Judaism and this sort of spiritual system that you can live your life by. It doesn't necessarily mean you would have to convert. You could just say, okay, this makes sense. This is a good framework for living and being a good person. How does it accelerate? Like, what are the steps that you actually get to the point of saying, I think I actually want to live this way? Again, I have to give a certain amount of credit to my experience at the Kabbalah Center because their whole mission was removing pain and suffering from the world, right? That was their whole thing. And this spiritual technology that was given on Mount Sinai allowed this community called B'nai Israel to express this powerful technology. And so the whole idea of me becoming a Jew is definitely about my relationship with Hashem, but it's also my relationship with others, building a family, you know, building relationships in the community and the world as, as a whole. So I looked at it as more of being like a, a spiritual soldier for Hashem. I'm doing good in the world. I'm doing good within my family. I'm helping. And all of this is bringing light into the world, positive light into the world by doing mitzvot. And mitzvot is my natural lifestyle. I'm going to keep the Torah, right? And doing these things, it's like, it's a way higher level of life in general. Like, it's not like, oh, I'm just sacrificing to be a Jew. It's so hard. No, it's like, it's a way higher level Everything I'm experiencing right now is beyond my imagination. If you would have went back at the Cabal Center and you took a snapshot of just the last week of my life and you came back and played it to me, I'd be like, whoa, what happened? You know? I've interviewed more than 100 people now and a fair number of them were converts, but you're the first person I've actually spoken to who was following Islam and then turned to Judaism. Yeah. And so I feel like I need to ask you, given everything that's going on in the world right now, was there any difference in a conversion from Islam to Judaism versus someone who's Catholicism or Christianity and goes to Judaism? Is the road any different for you? I don't know. I mean, I think every convert has their own road because the whole conversion process itself is such an intense, deep, transformational process. You know what I mean? And you don't really understand it until you come out of it and you start living your life and you're like, whoa, like you, you start noticing all these shifts and Everybody has ideas and belief systems that they have to let go to embrace the Torah, to embrace the Jewish people. I think there's a, a ethical and moralistic transformation and shift of thought that has to happen, environmental shift of thought. There's a lot of shifts, a lot of changes, layers upon layers. I, I mean, you just can't compare, you know what I mean? Like, you could be two people that even come from Muslim backgrounds that have totally different experiences. Who you meet, what rabbi you meet, what community you're in, what's the climate there, whatever. I, I mean, I had a good, I mean, I had a relatively good experience. It was challenges. It was a lot of challenges. And then I look back and I'm so thankful that I had those challenges. It's a big transformation process, but it's huge. Now, from everything you described in your background career-wise, I'm thinking about your life post-conversion. I would not have expected to hear you then get involved in politics. So that, to me, seems to come out of nowhere just as much as suddenly getting into Judaism when it doesn't seem to be part of your background. So how does politics enter the picture post-conversion? Where are you living? What's your life like at that point? Yeah, so I'm in Los Angeles. I'm in like the Pico Robertson community. And, you know, before then you got, like, I was, you know, considered like an executive producer or media entertainment executive. And so like, I, I was like creating things. I was in the media a lot, but after I finished my conversion, I had no desire to do any of the things I was doing before. Like, I had zero desire. Like, I even had a movie package, like, set up that I was planning on doing. And then, like, after I came out of the mikvah, 
I just felt so clean and so pure. Like I didn't, I didn't want to connect in that way. And so like, I was just kind of like on fire. Like I was just like out of the mikvah, I was just on fire. And I was just like seeing all these things and I wanted to improve on this and the world needs to change in this way. Like everything needed to improve. And so for me, like I got involved in politics, not so much for politics, but it was more so to have conversations with people about a way to improve the community. So I got involved with the Republican Party, not because I share all the same values and beliefs of the Republican Party, because I don't, but it was more so as a Republican in L.A., it's like a non-existent concept, you know what I'm saying? So it was like whatever I wanted to do on my platform, I could do, like whatever I wanted to talk about, speaking to people about the need for entrepreneurship and for the community to have less dependencies on the government. And, and so that was like my main thing. And then for young people, I had this thing called the Social Media Business Enhancement Act, which was all about taking young influencers. And keep in mind, this is 2016. And, I, and, and having young influencers receive loans that they could get from, you know, different, like not even necessarily loans, like almost like financing that's there to support the growth of their social influencer business. And so I was doing that in 2016. Now, you know, everyone's an influencer or whatever, but... That's what I was um, focused on, and I wanted to, like, get out of this whole, like, executive producer thing, and I just thought, like, going into politics was, like, I enjoyed it. I mean, I, I mean, I lost in a primary, you know, in L.A., not by that much. Karen Bass, who's now the mayor of Los Angeles, was on a ticket as well, and she blew all of us out, but I could have still made it to the second round, but I only lost by not so much. I got, you know, like, like close to, like, 10,000 votes. You know, that's a lot of people to vote for you. And it was my first time out. And we only raised $2,500. I didn't even go out. I wasn't even trying to raise, take people's money. Were you campaigning as an African-American Orthodox Jew wearing a kippah? And, and if so, how were you received? How did people make sense of, of who you were, what you stood for? Because you had to come across as very different from the typical candidate. Yeah, yeah. It was, it was kind of like most of my conversations were talking about Judaism. Like, that's what, like, most of, like, because they always ended up, you know, me bringing it up, me talking about it, and, you know, I had this, like, Arabic name, too, you know what I mean? So it's, like, I'm, like, explaining to, like, these people, like, yeah, I have this name, but I'm Orthodox and Jewish, and I keep Shabbat, and I only kosher, and my campaign manager was also Jewish as well, too, so it was, like, traveling Jews around, like, L.A., and because the 37th District covers, like, African-American and Latino inner cities, and they also cover some of the most wealthiest parts of Los Angeles. So it's in the Jewish community is a big part of that as well. Even before that, I was um, chairman of Jewish outreach at the California Republican Assembly. I'm not a politician anymore. I don't consider myself a politician. It was a phase that I went through and I got out of my system. And um, I just, I work for Hashem now. That's what I do. The one thing you didn't mention is what position were you specifically running for? And then you said you didn't win in the primary. So what happened in your life post-primary when it looked like that wasn't going to be your next career move? Yeah, so I was running for U.S. Congress uh, in the 37th District in Los Angeles. At the time, the incumbent was uh, Karen Bass. And um, she was actually one of the Joe Biden's potential vice presidents. She was one of them. And then she's now mayor of Los Angeles. So, you know, she's a pretty reputable person. And so I ran there, and it was great. And until after um, we lost in the primary, some of the rabbis in my community in Los Angeles, you know, I was doing, like, as a volunteer, like, different outreach stuff, you know, mostly, like, uh, for uh, Netzach, which is, like, a predominantly Persian shul, like, in Beverly Hills. I was very involved with them. 
And so I was doing outreach with like, you know, different schools with young kids that were Jewish, whatever, and just, you know, coming, giving pep talks, whatever. So some of the rabbis said, hey, since, you know, you're not going to continue on, why don't you go to Yeshiva for a little while, go to Israel, just learn a little bit and then come back and continue on everything. And I was like, I was like, yeah, you're right. You know, you're right. And, and like at the time I was looking like to get married and, you know, that type of a thing. And so I, I was like, all right, yeah, why not? I give it a shot. Go there for a few months and come back. Right. And so when I came to Israel, it was 2016, and um, I went to um, Or Sameach, which is a yeshiva in the east part of Jerusalem. It's a, it's a tremendous learning institution. It's like when I was there, it was like probably close to like 400 students um, there, and has a history for you know 67 years or something like this. You know, I was there, and, and, and I was there for five years, and I moved on and learned other places. But I came here just thinking I was going to be here for six months, and it turned into over seven years. Wow. I hear that story a lot, where someone thinks they're just going to study for a short time, and then it becomes a longer time. And I mentioned you're doing the interview from Yerushalayim, so I would think it goes even beyond that. You choose to actually stay there? Yeah, yeah. I chose to stay there. I mean, I got married. You know, it's been uh, like two years I've been married. And so, you know, once you're married, it's like kind of like when life kind of like starts in a lot of ways. You know, like a year and a half ago, I became a, a rabbi. I got smicha like a year and a half ago. And so, like, you know, I've been teaching the whole time since I'm here. When I came to yeshiva, you know, the rabbis were like, you know, Mordecai, do you want to waste your life talking about politics? Or do you want to spend your life talking about Torah? Right? <laughs> and, and so I was like, yeah, you're right. I should. He said, because you're such a good communicator. You know, so you should do it. So they really put me out there. And I just started to, like, while I was learning, I was also teaching and giving over like all day, every day for years, you know? So I really was able to refine a lot of things. And eventually I turned into a speaker in general uh, in throughout Israel. And, and, and now I do stuff on the news, corresponding type stuff and all types of things. But it's a huge world, the yeshiva world. It's a huge world. And, and I've been submerged in it. And so now over the last, I'll say like year and a half, like I would say like I'm now more getting out and reaching out to other types of communities and other types of people and speaking different places and doing, you know, me and my wife, we even sometimes we host like our own events. Like we did a Rosh Kodesh event a little while ago. So, you know, we're, we're just kind of like getting used to everything right now. I have a book that came out, Mind of the Black Jew. So at least I should do it. Now we had uh, Nisim Black on Saturday to Shabbos, and he and I got into a discussion about the fact that sometimes life for an African-American can be challenging and sometimes life for a Jewish person can be challenging. And the fact that he was both meant sometimes he's getting difficulties for both things that he is. I'm curious if you have felt that also, both being African-American, identifying with Judaism, do you deal with those two things together? Is one sometimes trickier than the other? I, I think it's probably more of a thing in America than Israel, right? Because in Israel, it's more about like Peshkafa. Are you more with this community? Are you with more of that community? Where, where are you holding at? in terms of being Jewish and those types of things. And it's less like the black part here in Israel. And it's more like about like Hashkafa. Cause there's so many, it's like everyone's dark melanated to some degree. You know what I mean? Even, even if you have a bad suntan, you know what I mean? It's, it's still like, <laughs> so, but in America, I think you probably had to do with the black thing more because like, that's the way the country's set up and, and those types of things. But you know, you have, I mean, everybody, people are people, you know, people have biases, people have experiences, People have things, so you kind of like have to to roll with it, and you have to like you know. I would say like for other people who are converts or African Americans, 
you know, that get involved in the Jewish community, I would say that, like, you know, it's important to, like, you know, have empathy for the Jewish people. You know what I mean? Because there's a lot of different experiences that Jews have had throughout the world. And you really get to learn that here in Israel. Because Jews are from every part of the world that are here, right? And they've had different experiences. They have different cultural biases. They have certain people have different traumas, all types of things. And so sometimes, you know, as African-Americans, if we're in an environment and we and we feel like maybe a resistance or we don't feel like, you know, we're being pulled in or, or treated maybe the same or these type of things, it triggers us to think about what we experienced in North America as African-Americans with people who are not Jewish. And I would say just to have compassion, because I lived in Mir Sharim four and a half, almost five years while I was here, while I was in Yeshiva. So Mir Sharim is known as like one of the most religious communities in Jerusalem, if not Israel, right? And I would say when I first came there, people were staring at me like, who is this guy? But you know what? Over time, I developed a whole like fan-based community there, you know, of like, Kasidisha guys and families and Rabbanum and other Bukram and and it was just it just took that time to get there. So I would just say that, you know, to really have a lot of compassion on our brothers and and not use American lenses to try to understand uh, the Jewish community. Now I'd be remiss if I didn't ask you about the war going on right now between Israel and Hamas. Are you in this unique position given your background connected to Islam and now the conversion and following Judaism? Are people expecting you to comment on the fact that this is going on between these two sides and they think you more than most people should be able to comment on what's behind it, why it's happening? I just wanted to ask what what kind of conversations you're typically having right now about this. Yeah. So, yeah. The, so the, the war thing is just, you know, I mean, that's a whole podcast in itself because it's just like this waking up in the morning on October 7th. And hearing the sirens going off, and you're like, "Wait, what is going on right now?" You know, and and shortly after the sirens, you're just hearing boom, 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 boom. You know, just being here is 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 been crazy. But yeah, people reached out, but most of my conversations are with soldiers. I have so many people that I'm connected to through various reasons. I have guys who are serving right now. They're in the field right now in the north and calling me, talking Torah, giving chizuk. You know, I know people who are in the medical units that, you know, were down in the South and I'm meeting with them. I think because I'm African-American, like you said, like I have a unique background. I think there's a safety quality there because people know I, I had to go through a lot to be here. That That's a connection point, you know, because everyone's on their own journey. Everyone's on that. So, so yeah, so a lot of my conversations right now have been with people who are actually dealing with things in real time giving chizuk and these types of things. And then also, um, I have made an effort to reach out to the African-American community to talk to them, you know, about what's going on here in Israel and misperceptions and and debunking things. It's a lot of work. You know, I I really believe that there needs to be more investment into this type of outreach, you know, going forward, you know, uh, with the African-American community. That's another conversation. Yes, I'm I'm, I'm very involved. It's, it's, It's a huge moment in my life. And and you see all the lies that are being said about Israel and military ethics. We're doing it right. Like what's happening right now, what Israel's doing, West Point and military universities for generations are going to be studying the ethics that was applied to the situation in Gaza. You know, it's a sad time, but it's a beautiful time. We believe here that this is the beginning of the end of this whole deaf culture that Hamas has created. Do you find, though, that anybody is saying to you, given your background and how you were raised, 
that you probably still have friends who are Muslim from your childhood and asking you to play some kind of role of sort of bridging these two worlds and helping people who are Muslim kind of understand that what Hamas did doesn't represent Muslim beliefs and that they're two different things and that Hamas's actions in and of themselves doesn't mean that's what every Muslim person is doing. But are they asking you to go to Muslims and say, hey, why don't you come out and denounce what Hamas did and, and view it as separate from what they're following in their Muslim faith? You know, fortunately, a lot of the Muslims that I do know and have grown up with, they're very much on the side of Israel in a lot of ways. The challenge is for them to openly endorse Israel. You know, I've spent a lot of time here. I made a lot of, you know, friends. I met many different Palestinian people. And you know what? The vast majority of Palestinians, almost all the ones that I met here in Jerusalem, they're just living. They want to have a nice cold beer, you know, at the end of the day. They want to hang out with friends. They want to have their cigarettes and this, the whole thing, the whole Israeli thing, right? And so when you see a group like Hamas in Hezbollah, in the regime in Iran, and all these proxies that are in Syria and Iraq, and people in Yemen, the Houthis or whatever they're called, you see all this conglomerate of people that just want to suppress the Muslim people. And then you see Muslims, most of which in the West, fled Islamic radicalism. This is how you change the whole thing. People in Iraq, you know, who are in America who fled it. Syria, people fled Assad, you know. Me, personally, the Muslims I do know are, are all, none of them, are they're embarrassed by a Hamas. They have nothing to do with that. These are normal, educated people. But the challenge is for them to not see supporting Israel in, in our mission as a nation as a betrayal to their beliefs or their identity as Muslims. It makes sense. I want to ask you just one last question before we wrap the interview. Something that's become clear just hearing you tell your story is that you are someone who is not afraid of making changes, growing, seeking. And so I'm just curious to know what's next for you as you think about the next three to five years. What's on that bucket list of things you want to accomplish? Uh, one, I want to, you know, I want to be a father, you know, continue to grow as a, as a husband. I want to continue to grow deeper in, in my spirituality and engaging with the African-American community, not to bring people in the fold of Judaism, but rather, you know, create positive alliances, you know, like have conversations, see where there's crossover of ideas and objectives. You know, right now I'm giving a weekly class with Jews in India through Zoom. And so I want to keep engaging like communities that are kind of like farther away. They may not be Jewish, you know, as we are, but they have like a, a Zara Israel, a, a Zara like seed of Jacob thing going and just engaging with them and helping them whether get to seven B'nai Noach or if they want to go further, you know, helping that way, touching more people, reaching more people and, and just uh, utilizing the newest technologies, just expansion, 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 expansion. Rabbi Mordecai Yosef ben Avraham, I love your story, and I just want to say thank you so much for sharing it today on Saturday to Shabbos. Thank you. Saturday to Shabbos is produced by Gary Wallach. Our theme music is by Paul Uden. To learn more about us, please visit tachlismedia.com. That's T-A-C-H-L-I-S-Media.com. Tell us what you think about what you've heard or suggest a story we should know about by emailing Shabbos at tachlismedia.com. I'm Jeff Cohen. Thanks for listening. 
Please check with us often for more stories of inspiring Jewish journeys. Saturday to Shabbos is a Tachlis Media podcast.